Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Good to be with you on this first Sunday of 2018. I know that uh, Christmas Eve feels like a long time ago, but thought you might like to know we were able to serve nearly 7,000 people over Christmas Eve. 12 services, five locations. Really, really wonderful time. Snuck it in between snowstorms. So uh, thanks to God. Thanks to all of you who helped to make it possible by your service. Thanks to all of you who invited friends and family to join you for those days. And uh, if you happen to be with us for a first time, Christmas Eve, and you're back for more, we are glad you're here. And I hope you feel welcome. Now, I hope you also got a little bit of downtime between Christmas and New Year, between snowstorms and all that sort of thing. We finally managed to see that new Star Wars film, uh, The Last Jedi, on New Year's Eve. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you have seen the film? So I know how much you're a little to say about it. Okay, maybe half or so. Well, the, the, the film picks up where the last one left, left off, with our young protagonist, Ray, finally tracking down the fabled Luke Skywalker, who appears to be the last of the Jedi warriors. Now, we met Rey in the last episode. She is an orphan scavenger living on an out-of-the-way planet named Jakku, when she finds herself suddenly swept up in this galactic conflict between the tyrannical First Order and the floundering resistance movement. And Ray has come seeking Luke Skywalker's help, but he seems to be uninterested in playing the hero. In one of the early scenes, they have a rather intense exchange. Where are you from? Luke asks. Nowhere, Ray replies curtly. Why are you here, Ray from nowhere? Luke asks. The resistance sent me, she says. But why are you here, Luke presses. And after a pause, Ray says, something inside me has always been there. Now it's awake. And for my money, it's the best line in the film. <laughs> the unfortunate thing is it comes about 10 minutes in, and there's a lot of movie after that. <laughs> something inside me has always been there. Now it's awake. For a long time, Ray has sensed that something bigger is going on in and around her, something more important, something more exciting than salvaging scrap metal and marking the days on her wall back in Jakku. But now that something is stirring inside her, and Luke's question has called it to the surface, why are you here? It's a question we all need to answer at some point in our lives, and maybe at many points in our lives. Why are you here? Why are you here on planet Earth? Why are you here in Greater Boston? Why are you here at Grace Chapel? Why are you in the neighborhood you're living in? Why are you at the job you're working? Why are you at the school you're attending? And not just why are you here, but why are you here? It's one of the most important questions we can ever answer because if, if there's no answer to that question, if there's no why to our living, then all we're doing is marking time, drifting through space, working, studying, playing, partying, scavenging for bits of significance, for moments of satisfaction. Why are you here? 
That's the question we'd like to go after in this January teaching series, which we're calling Your Place in God's World. We want you to hear and respond to God's call on your life. Because we happen to believe there is something bigger going on out there, and that there is something inside each of us that needs to be awakened. This is a year of mobilization for us here at Grace. We're shifting our ministry model from come and see to go and do. We want to move beyond the walls of the church to get out into our various corners of the world, of the city, of the communities in which we live, the workplaces we are, the schools we attend, the neighborhoods, and be about God's work in this world, to to bring it to the world instead of waiting for them to come to us. And so we've talked a lot about finding your go, your unique contribution to God's work in the world for this season of your life. How do you find your go? Many people have asked. How do you know your unique contribution to God's work in the world? That's what this five-week series is all about. Now, we've been using the image of a megaphone here to represent God's call. The truth is, God's call isn't usually that loud and that obvious. In fact, just out of curiosity, how many of you noticed the megaphone in the video we watched right before this series. How many of you, not too many noticed, how many times did you see the megaphone? It actually shows up three times. So you're going to have to come back next week and watch and listen more carefully <laughs> for the megaphone in the video. I'll pretend we did that on purpose, okay? And <laughs> so hearing the call of God isn't always that easy amidst all the noise of our lives. But our prayer is that by the end of the series, we will know the the why, the what, the who, the what not, and the big story behind every one of our lives. Now, quick spoiler alert, we may come back to The Last Jedi on the final message of the series. So if you don't want us to give away one of the big reveals in the movie, you've got four weeks to see it. After that, you're on your own, okay? But just to put your minds at ease, this series is not based on the Star Wars movie. It's actually based on the Bible. So we will be teaching from the scriptures. We're going to be working out of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul to a community of Christ seekers and Christ followers who are trying to figure out their place in the first century world. So let's jump into the middle of that letter, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, and that will be our focus for today. Ephesians 4, 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, it's not too much of a stretch to imagine the Apostle Paul as a Luke Skywalker kind of figure, minus the lightsaber. Paul is a seasoned sage at this point in life. For 20-some years, he's been traveling the world, preaching the gospel, planting churches all over the empire. But suddenly, he finds himself in prison, out of the action and uncertain about his future. And the next generation of Christ's followers are looking to him for wisdom, for direction. They want to know what they should be doing now. What's their mission now that it seems they're in for a long struggle? until Christ returns. So this verse, chapter 4, verse 1, is actually a pivot point in the entire letter. It comes right at the center. In chapters 1 through 3 of the letter, 
Paul gives the big picture of what God is doing in the world. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. In the second half of the letter, chapters four through six, Paul actually tells them what they should be doing and when and where and how. But before he gets to those questions, he wants them to know the why behind it all. And it's obvious this is very important to Paul. Notice how he leverages his credentials here. As a prisoner for the Lord then, he's reminding them of the price he has paid, his commitment to this mission. And then he says, I urge you. He's not just asking or suggesting. He's pleading. He's begging with them. Not just because he cares about the mission, but because he cares about them. Now, every parent should recognize this tone of voice, this choice of words here. Those moments when you look one of your children in the eye, whatever age they might be, and you plead with them to do or not do a particular thing. It might be a simple mundane thing like not to play with matches. It could be something more profound, not to get involved with the wrong person. But you look them in the eye and with all the sincerity and authority that you have in your heart, you say to them, you plead with them to do or not do a particular thing. And you do that not to control them, not to limit them, but because you want the best for them. And that's what Paul wants for his readers here. For every single one of them, he wants, he wants the very best for them. This, this isn't just for leaders. It's not for some elite team of Christ followers. Paul knew this letter would be read in congregations just like this one, full of people just like you and me. And he wants all of them to live a worthy life. He wants them to live a good life, a rich life, a satisfying life, a meaningful life. And the way to do that, he says, is to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So there it is, that word calling. Now, as it turns out, in the original language, that word calling actually appears three times in this sentence. He says, I call you urgently, I call you to live a life worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So let's pause for a minute here and make sure we understand this notion of calling. What exactly are we talking about? Uh, the Christian thinker, philosopher named Oz Guinness thinks this particular word is so important. Some years ago, he wrote an entire book on this subject. It's become kind of a classic on the subject. And the title is simply, The Call, Finding and Fulfilling the Central Purpose of Your Life. Now, like all philosophers, he uses a lot of words. But, but let's look at his definition of calling. Calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have is invested with a special devotion, dynamism, and direction lived out in response to his summons and service. You think preachers use a lot of words, okay? In other words, Guinness is saying when you're called to something, you don't just do it, you do it for a reason. And you don't just do it for yourself, you do it for or with or in response to someone else 
a call always implies a caller. So we'll come back to this kind of lofty definition in a minute, but let's try to think about this notion of calling for a minute in a little more practical way. The idea of a call always involves two things. First of all, a call always implies relationship. We call people we know, and we take calls from people that we know. There's a guy in my former church uh, back in New York. Um, we weren't friends exactly, but he was a faithful attender at our church, and, and I had counseled him through some challenging situations in his life. And, and ever since that time, he calls me two or three times a year. Sometimes out of the blue, sometimes they wish me a happy birthday or a happy new year, two or three times a year. Every time he calls, he threatens to come up and see me. In fact, he threatens to come walking down the center aisle and come up on the platform with me. He threatens to do that. He never has. In 18 years, he's never come near Boston. He just calls two, three times a year. In fact, he's been known to call the church office and claim to be my long-lost twin brother. Now, that always confuses the receptionist because they're pretty sure I don't have a long-lost twin brother. And so they'll come to my office and say, I have a call here from your twin brother. <laughs> and I laugh and I take the call because I know Gene and he knows me. We have a relationship. And so this idea of call always implies a relationship on both ends. There's a caller and a callee. But calling also implies purpose. We call for a reason. A mother calls her kids because it's time for dinner. A friend calls because they want to tell you about their vacation. A sales rep calls because they have a new product you might be interested in. Call implies purpose. So when we say that God has called us, we're saying he's called us, first of all, to a relationship. And secondly, he's called us for a purpose. He wants to be with us and he wants to, to do something with him and for him. So with those two things in mind, let's come back now to Guinness's philosophical definition. Calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have is invested with a special devotion, dynamism, and direction lived out in response to his summons and his service. So notice, first of all, the relationship piece. God calls us to himself, to follow him, to worship him, to serve him. And he's made that relationship possible through his son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth to reveal God and make God accessible to us. And Guinness says, that's our primary calling. Every person's primary calling is to follow Christ. But notice God also calls us for a purpose that we might live our lives in response to his summons and his service. In other words, that we might join him in his saving, healing, restoring work in this world. And, and that service involves everything about our lives, everything we are, everything we have, everything we do. And this is our secondary calling, Guinness says. Our primary calling is to follow Christ. Our secondary calling is to follow Christ in a particular way at a particular time, in a particular place, a way and a time and a place that's unique to us. Our primary call to follow Christ, our second call, secondary call to follow him in a way and a time and a place that's unique to us. 
And that secondary calling involves our, our working lives, whatever it is you do for a living, for a profession, to provide for yourself and your family. It includes all the work and the care that you do around your home and those who live in it. It includes your involvement in the community. It includes the church you're part of. It includes every aspect of your life is part of that secondary calling. So God calls us to a relationship with him and to a mission with him. He calls us to be with him and to go with him. And this call, this call wasn't just for Paul, for missionaries who went around the world preaching. This call was for everyone in that church, every seeker and believer who was reading this letter. And that call is for every person who's listening to this message right now today. Every single one of us has been called by God. Whether you're in Lexington or East Lexington or Wilmington or Watertown or Foxborough or Amherst, if you're listening at home or in the car or on the treadmill at the gym, God calls you to a relationship and to a life of mission. And that mission, that call encompasses everything you are and have and do. Once you've heard that call, once you understand the purpose of your life, and the primary relationship of your life, now you're on your way to answering the why question. Why are you here on planet Earth, in greater Boston, at Grace Chapel? Another Christian philosopher some time ago, Soren Kierkegaard, put it this way. The thing is to understand myself, what God wants me to do, the idea for which I can live and die. Is there something inside you you're willing to live and die for? Well, this is some pretty heady stuff. Why don't we try to come at it from another way? Okay, we've heard from a couple of philosophers. Why don't we try a comedian for a change of pace? Some of you are familiar with Michael Jr. He is a regular feature of the Global Leadership Summit that we host every summer. Uh, Michael Jr. Is a, happens to be a Christ follower, and he does comedy all across the country and the world. But he's also on a mission to help people discover their purpose in life as well. Let's watch a three-minute clip from one of his shows. How do I know? A lot of people, when they think of the phrase, how do I know, they always want to put the what behind it. How do I know what I'm supposed to do? The, the question that you really should ask is, how do I know why I'm here? Because when you know your why, your what becomes more clear and more impactful. If you know, like for instance, um, people know that I do comedy, but that's what I do. My why is to inspire people to walk in purpose. So I can do comedy, I can write books, I can be in a movie because all of it is motivated by my why. In fact, I have a new, uh, a new web series out called Michael Jr. Break Time. What it is, is it's me. I travel around the country and I do stand-up comedy, in case you didn't know. <laughs> and in the middle of my comedy set sometime, I'll stop and just talk to my audience. And we've been filming this and it's, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. So <laughs> we're in Winston-Salem. I'm going to show you a clip from Winston-Salem. And I'm just talking to this guy in the audience, and he tells me that he's a, uh, a musical instructor at a school. So I was like, all right, you're a musical instructor. You know, can you sing? Let me hear you sing a song. So this is what happened at the last episode of Michael Jr.'s Break Time. Check it. So you're a musical director. Cool. Yes, sir. All right, so um, 
Let me get a couple, let me get a couple bars of like uh, Amazing Grace. Can you do the first part of that? Let me, go ahead. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That bro could sing, you know what I'm saying? All right, all right. Uh, now, once you give me the version, is if uh, your uncle just got out of jail, you got shot in the back when you was a kid. I'm just saying, let me see the hood version real quick. If you know which version I'm talking about, just see if that exists. Let me see what you got. Amazing. I want you to catch. The first time I asked him to sing, he knew what he was doing. The second time, he knew why he was doing it. When you know your why, your what becomes more impactful because you're walking towards or in your purpose. Well, as Michael pointed out, the first time around, the man was just singing. Now, he was singing well. He's good at it. He's trained. It's what he does. But when Michael gave him a story to go with the song, when he gave him a why to go with his what, it became so much more beautiful, so much more powerful, so much more satisfying. Now, your uncle may not have just gotten out of jail, and you probably weren't shot in the back when you were a kid. But you have a story story that includes every aspect of your life, and a story that includes the work of God in your life, whether you've been aware of it or not. And that story, your story, becomes the why behind your what. The reason, the driving purpose that you do, whatever it is you do on your job, around the house, in the community, or at the church. And Paul actually reminds us of that story, of our story, right here in this verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Let's come back to it. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That word, then, could better be translated, therefore. Paul's saying, in light of everything I've just told you in chapters 1 through 3, everything God's doing in the world, in light of all that, let me now tell you what you should be doing and how you should be living. 
And what he's just told them is the story of what God has been up to, what God's up to in the world, what he's been up to since the very creation of the world. And it's so exciting. Let's just pick up a couple phrases from those first few chapters and get a feel for it. Chapter one, he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world, and he made known to us the mystery of his will to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under Christ. Paul is telling us the God of heaven and earth is up to something, that he's been up to something from the very beginning of time, that he has a plan and a purpose to put this broken world back together and to bring everyone and everything to perfect completion through Christ. And that plan includes us. It includes you and me. We've been part of it, he says, from the very beginning, which means when God made you, when he formed you in your mother's room, he made you for a purpose. Your, your personality, your temperament, your talent, your mind, your body, everything about you has been made and designed by God that you might reflect his glory and do his work in a, in a way that only you can. He made you for that. Go ahead to chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. Now and again, you may not have been shot in the back or just gotten out of jail, but you were in trouble, and so was I. We were, we were stuck in our selfish, stubborn, dead-end ways of living. We were doing life without God and headed towards eternity without God. But he stepped in and he saved us. He rescued us. Now, he saved all of us in different ways and from different stuff, from pride, greed, lust, laziness, from loneliness, from bitterness, from bondage, from brokenness, whatever it might be. We've all been saved in different ways and in different times, but we've been saved from something and what our, our friend in the video just sang is true for every one of us who has come to faith in Christ. We once were lost, but now are found. We were blind, but now we see. And how and when and what you were saved from, that's part of your story. That's part of the why behind whatever your what is in this world. But God not only made us for a purpose, and, and, uh, and saved us for a purpose. He also shaped us for a purpose. Jump ahead a little further in chapter two. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, we've talked about this verse before. Paul's describing a potter working with a piece of clay on a wheel, working it and shaping it with all of its imperfections and impurities, working it so that that thing becomes a beautiful, useful vessel, which means that you and I are his handiwork, his, his craftsmanship, his masterpiece. From the very beginning of your life, God has been working with all the events and experiences of your life, working with them to shape you into someone who can do something good in this world, something only you can do. And as we learned earlier, that something includes every part of your life, your working life and your home life, your friendships and your finances, your, your free time, your tea time, your everything. All of it 
There's a purpose and a call that runs through every aspect of your life, a call that's unique to you and your story. God made you for it. He saved you for it. He shaped you for it. And it turns out he placed you for it here in greater Boston, at Grace Chapel, on your job, in your neighborhood, in your house, at your school. He placed you there in helping you find your place in God's world to hear and answer God's call on your life. That's what this series is all about. But it begins with the story of God's amazing grace. That's the why behind all of our what. Before we finish up, there's one more word I want to come back to here. We kind of skipped over it these first few times. One more time, chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That word worthy literally means heavy or weighty. It was a word that was used in reference to commercial scales of justice, of justice of commerce, scales that would be used in business transactions of the day. A customer would place a, some gold coins on one side of the scale, worth a certain amount of money. And then he would expect the provider to place an equal amount of grain or cloth or whatever he was buying on the other side. And when the scales balanced, the grain was considered worthy of the gold. So keep that image of the scale and the balance in your mind. And let's remember now, Ephesians 4, chapter 1, comes at the very center of this letter. In fact, Pastor Dave pointed out to me that the word worthy in the original language actually comes at the very center of this sentence. So the center word of the center sentence in this balanced book is this idea of worthy. So in chapter 1, Paul's described everything that God, over here, everything that God has done for us in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6, he describes everything he asks us to do for the world. And when those things are balanced, then our lives are worthy of what God has done for us. And so if God has been good and gracious and faithful to us, how can we be anything less than good and gracious and faithful and even sacrificial in serving the world that he's called us to. So let's come back to the gentleman we met in the video a few moments ago singing. The first time he sang Amazing Grace, it was worthy of a music teacher with some training and a good set of pipes. The second time he sang, it was worthy of a soul that had been saved from sin and death. The first time he knew what he was singing, the second time he knew why he was singing. So think for a minute about what you do. What do you do every day? What do you do on your job? What do you do around the house? What do you do in your neighborhood? What do you do at church? Do you understand the why, the story behind what it is you do? Is there a reason behind it? Is the way you study, the way you work, the way you play, is, is, it, is it worthy of all that God has done for you? Now, friends, I have a bit of a confession to make. I finished writing this message about noon yesterday. 
sent it off to the translators and the tech teams. Took the afternoon off, went to the mall, made some returns, saw half of Grace Chapel at the Burlington Mall. <laughs> Got some dinner, came home, and then sat down to kind of go over the message again, as I typically do on a Saturday night, to just kind of get it all firmly in my head. As I sat down to work at the last minute, I remember it's probably a good idea to pray. As I bowed to pray, it suddenly hit me that I had neglected the why behind this message. See, I've been preaching for a long time. I know how to do it. I'm pretty good at it. I actually get paid for it. <laughs> and it's what I do. And I could have preached that sermon the way it was, and it would have been fine. As I thought about it, I realized that that's not why I preach. So that people walk out and say, boy, the brother can preach. So as I bowed to pray, I suddenly began to think of all of you. All of you who would be listening to this message. And I began to remember why I preach. It's because I really believe there's a God who made all of this and every one of you to be about his, his work and to be part of his glory in this world. And because that God found me as a child, and he made me his child through faith in Christ. He, he put me in a great Christian home and, and raised me in a great church and has led me into a life that's more abundant and satisfying than I could ever possibly have imagined. And I want that life for everyone. I want it for every one of you, every one of you. I want it for everyone in my neighborhood. I want it for everyone in my extended family. I want it for everyone in the world. And that's why I preach. It's why I lead. It's why I pastor. And when I, when, I, when I preach and serve and lead that way, well, it becomes more beautiful and powerful and satisfying. And so I ask God to allow me to preach it that way. But here's the important thing, and this is the really important thing. There's a why behind your what as well. You've been called to do something in this world. And what you do is just as important to the kingdom of God as what I do. It's not just pastors who are called. It's plumbers and it's pediatricians. It's professors and it's pastry chefs. It's parents and poets and painters and people of every age and walk of life who uniquely reflect the image of God and who have been made saved, shaped, and placed to do something beautiful in this world. And helping you hear that call and answer that call, it's not just what this series is about, it's what our whole mission is about. And so here's where we'll land today. Following the call means knowing, remembering the why behind everything you do. Following the call means remembering the why behind whatever you do. Now, in the weeks to come, we'll talk about the what and the who and the how and all those other things, but today is all about the why. Why are you here? My hope is that like Ray from nowhere, 
You're here because you sense something stirring inside of you. Something that's always been there, but now it's awake. And that something is nothing less than the call of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for speaking into our lives so personally and clearly on this first Sunday of a new year. Thank you for a chance for fresh start and new beginnings. Lord, we confess that it's not always easy to hear your voice, to discern your call amidst all the noise and distraction of our lives. So we're grateful for the moments we've enjoyed here today to sing and pray and read and talk and think. And now for these moments to gather around a communion table that reminds us very clearly of what you have done for us, how you came, lived, died, rose again, and someday will return to finish what you've begun. Meet us here in these next few moments and enable us to hear your call on our lives and our church. In Jesus' name, amen.